0: Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay, who's back after a well-needed break. Welcome back, Chris. Good to be back, Kenneth. Today, we're taking a trip once again back in time, but not as far as we've done before. This time, we're going back to 1997. New metal was all the rage, and a lot of new bands were beginning to peer their heads around the corner. 1997 may not have been a glamorous or
1: earth-shattering year, but it was important in the world of metal. It was a year of transition that saw the birth of many new mainstays in the scene, some big changes to metal gods, and saw the end of a few influential bands as well. And at the end of the show, we'll
0: give you our big four metal songs of 1997. So with that said, sit back, relax, grab a cold one or a shot of your favorite poison or whatever, and let the debate begin. But before we begin, I first want to welcome you back again officially, Chris. It's good to have you back good to hear your voice
1: yeah i just needed a little bit of time off to deal with some some health and mental health things and it's very important that you take care of yourself and uh, i think just keep that in mind be good to yourself everybody out there
0: isn't there a song about that be good to yourself uh yeah it's journey that's right Journey. <laughs> i was thinking i know this song from somewhere <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's always important, man. If you, if you got to take time away, if you got to step aside in whatever anyone is doing out there, you know, if you have to make time for yourself, make it because that is by far the most important thing in your life is you. So 1997, Chris, um, you know, when we look back at, 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 like we did 1983, we did 1991, those were huge years, 1997, not as huge, but yet I think it's like a swing year, almost like a swing state in the elections this is a swing year. This is a lot of things started happening. You know, 1996 was over and and it, it left a lot of things behind and 1997 opened a lot of doors. There's not a lot of, like, like you said at the beginning, not a lot of glamorous things happened this year, but a few big names would pop up throughout the year. And that, uh, was really, really important to the year as the rest of the decade would play itself out.
1: For sure. I mean, I remember this year, pretty well um i remember a lot of the albums that we're going to talk about um just being kind of very influential on me um i was i was pretty young um a lot of the stuff would become pretty big around the time i was in high school uh the bands specifically that we're going to talk about and some of these it's it's so funny that some of these songs um you know it came out in 1997 but i remember these albums really kind of blowing up in my high school, uh, which would be, you know, four or five years later. So, uh, some of the bands that we're going to talk about, I became lifelong fans of. Um, There was, like you said, a lot of transition where bands were kind of altering from their original form into maybe what was known as like their, um, you know, uh, classic lineup or, even sometimes replacing a, a singer or something like that, where this it, it, happened multiple times. So it's gonna be interesting to talk about.
0: Yeah, and no, I think so too. Uh, so in, in regards to that, let's go over before we begin on the albums that we're going to talk about, let's kind of go over a, a few notable events that happened. And it wasn't, like I said, not a glamorous year, not a lot of stuff happened, but still enough stuff to kind of say, oh, okay. There was, you know, uh there were some things that happened and one of the biggest things that happened in 1997 was actually the reconciliation between Vince Neil and the rest of Motley Crue as he rejoined the band uh in
1: 97. Yeah, that was that was uh, Generation Swine, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> we won't we won't we won't talk about that one. Matt I mean, Sorry. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's a notable thing, right? Like you have a band that, uh, again, is, it's in a transition state where um, they had tried something different with a different singer, John Karabi, and then realized that, you know, to be more financially viable, they needed to get the original band back together. And it, it did work. They didn't necessarily put out better music, but that was what the people wanted to see. So there's a lot of things like that, that are are pretty interesting where it's, yeah, it's not any landmark albums per se, um, or not necessarily any, but not as many, but big things were happening in the scene. Uh,
0: Exactly. And it, it's, it's, it goes along with, you know, Vince Neil reuniting with Molly crew goes along with the fact that black Sabbath reunited that year as well. Uh, the original lineup with Ozzy and Bill Ward. So that was another very notable event that happened that year. Um, one sad thing that happened that year, um, also was the vocalist for the mentors. El Duce was killed in a train accident. Um, and the band would then go on hiatus for the next three years. And there's a lot of controversy about that because, Yeah, El Duce and uh, his real name is Eldon Hokey. I think it's Hokey is how you pronounce it. And he claimed that Courtney Love tried to hire him to kill Kurt Cobain. So there's a lot of people out there still believe that Kurt Cobain was, did not kill himself. So it's a very interesting um, conspiracy theory that's out there. And, Funny enough, is shortly after he made this claim, he was killed in a train accident, and some people say that even the train accident was not an accident. So there's a lot of conspiracy to that one. So it's very interesting. So that happened in '97 as well. Yeah, that's too bad. It, it's it's
1: always it's always a trip to go down the uh, the rabbit hole of the conspiracy around Kurt Cobain.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, it's right. It's starting to, it's starting to build itself up there for the, for the music industry, you know, like, like a JFK type thing, you know I mean? And there's no comparison. JFK is a really one of the biggest conspiracy things of all time. Um, but in music, I mean, there's so much, you know, with Jim Morrison, um, with, with, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all the, those big three in in the late sixties there. And, and then, uh, you know, you know, you have something like this with Kurt Cobain. There's, there's so many weird things that that you can sit there and say, "Oh yeah, look at that," and you go down that rabbit hole. But you have to believe it first. That's the, that's the big thing. If you don't believe it, then you know it doesn't really work. <laughs> As with yeah, the most fair
1: theories, you know. I think you do enough drugs, you can make yourself believe. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's people who, for the longest time, thought Jim Morrison was still alive. And that they you know saw him walking around and so same thing with Elvis, the Elvis conspiracy theories. Mama it's Cass. Like, Mama Cass. I mean, there's just so many <laughs> out there. It's just like, come on, people, really. You know, they found Elvis on a fucking toilet.
1: <laughs> really? there, there's still there's still a theory. There's like a recent one, uh, that they're they're comparing this guy, and I don't I don't remember his name, but you can look up like the the Elvis comparison photos, like they're comparing his smile like now with facial recognition technology they're like comparing the 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 location of his eyes on this face and stuff like that and they're like this guy's Elvis. It's it's interesting. You know, they do
0: know Elvis would be like you know close to 100 years old or some shit like that, right? <laughs> when was Elvis born? I don't know, but he's getting he's getting close up there. Let's see.
1: Elvis was born in 1935, so he would be, what, like 90, somewhere, right, like right at uh, 88,
0: right? 88, so he's up there. He's up there. I mean, he's not Betty White up there, but (laughs) he's up there. No. Okay, and so other bands that reformed in 1997 was Jane's Addiction, Suicidal Tendencies, and Rat. Um, those three bands, um, you know, suicidal, big influential band from, you know, from the early eighties in, in the, in the punk slash metal scene. Cause they definitely crossed over at some point, rat huge in the, in the, the hair metal scene in the, in the middle eighties. And it wasn't called hair metal back then. I know that, um, and Jane's addiction, obviously, you know, we, everyone knows that, that, that Perry has, uh, went on to start Lollapalooza, Perry Farrell and all that stuff. So, but oddly enough jane's addiction would later disband in the same year after releasing their greatest hits album Uh, and along with them uh, disbanding rollins band disbanded as well as soundgarden disbanded in 1997 so there was a lot of uh a lot of bigger names and and you know none of these names are huge but Rollins was influential because everyone knows Henry Rollins was in Black Flag, Soundgarden, you know, coming out of the the grunge era, and Jane's Addiction. You know, they're they're big in their field, in their specific genre of of hard rock metal, alternative metal, alternative rock, whatever you want to call it. They were huge, you know. Um, so for them to to disband and go away is kind of like interesting, you know. So do you have any bands that you know of that started in 1997?
1: Uh one of them I'm going to talk about. Okay, maybe that's a good transition to go into the first uh, band. Why don't we do that? Um, so that band would be Children of Bottom. Well, I guess it's not technically true. They didn't start in 1997. Their first album came out in 1997. However, um, they were originally called In Earth. So, um, I guess in some way, yeah, they started right around Um, So Children Bottom came out for their first album, Something Wild, this year. Um, man, when I first heard this, I was absolutely blown away. Um, the first track on the album was Dead Night Warrior and I was hooked from Go. Uh, it started off with, uh, you know, some, Kind of ambient sounds and that kind of stuff, and then a laugh, and then it starts with uh I believe it was the laugh from uh, uh, uh what was that movie it the The old one, the Clown movie. And so it it just snaps right into this really awesome lead off track. Uh, I It's one of those that it's not a very long album. I believe it's seven songs. Um, but every song is awesome and it's 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 great from beginning to end um the one thing that's kind of interesting about them is that you know a lot of a lot of the bands we're going to talk about had a lot of lineup changes at the beginning um from 1993 to 2003 it was this pretty much the same lineup um you know they they had a a couple additions but not really too many subtractions uh you know children bottoms stayed the same until their hate crew death roll album in 2003 and then after that they just really only replaced their uh rhythm guitarist from from you know a couple times so that band stayed together that whole time um so kind of interesting this is this is uh you know finland kind of popping up into the death metal scene with some uh symphonic elements um absolutely love children of bottom you know they disbanded in two, 2019 um that was mostly due to alexi's alcohol problems um and then he passed away not too long after that what was it uh, 2020 2020 wow so yeah um what uh, i know you've you've kind of gotten into them a bit uh, any thoughts
0: on uh, this particular album on the album, no, I, I haven't really gotten too deep into this album. Um, but what I can say about Children of Bodom in, in general, what I find interesting about them is they, you know, that uh, Alexi wanted to do something. He wanted to create something different, and you know, he was into death metal, um, and but he was also into you know like eighties metal. And shit like that. And so he was trying to do a combination of of that, and obviously not vocally, but, you know, like very similar to how how metalcore, and, and, and there's elements of metalcore that are very 80s metal-esque, you know, Uh Lamb of God does it, I know God Forbid did it, you know, Shadows Fall does it. They just have these, you can hear their influences from the 80s, you know, guitar players like uh, Adrian Smith and, and Dave Murray from Iron Maiden and, and a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So that was kind of Alexi's goal and he, he freaking nailed it. You know, I really think there's, you know, a lot, the, the novice will not notice these kinds of things, but someone who listens to this music all the time and can pick up on it will notice these, these influences here and there. And I think that's pretty cool
1: yeah i mean he incorporated a lot of those things like obviously neoclassical influences you know from just classical music in general but also guys like Ingve Malmsteen and and the like you know just really took a lot of different influences even everything from the Beatles like you know and just put it into his own form of music like that that's one thing and now that now that he's gone there's no replicating that band um he was just such a driving force in there um they're still one of my favorite bands like i there's not many albums from them that i'm not a big fan of
0: you know what what's what i found really interesting and i think that's kudos to the band that um broke up with uh, Alexi. and i and i put it in those terms cuz they basically fired him, but that's not what they said in the press. So my point being is that they, they basically kept everything close to the vest and they
1: had enough respect for him. Not Yeah. I mean,
0: and that's the thing. It was tremendous amount of respect for him. And they knew that he was going through these problems and they basically tried to put an end to, 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 to bottom as, as, simply as possible and neatly as possible. So as to not disturb the, the, the legacy of the band. And I think I, there's a tremendous amount of respect for those guys for doing that. And then, you know, after, um, you know, Alexi starts bottom after midnight, they still didn't say anything. And then, you know, basically at once he passed away, if you look, look or see, you know, see any videos or see any, uh, or read any interviews online, They are still tremendously respectful, but at the same time, they've they've opened up and they've said, "Hey, this is this is what the problem was," and you know, this is this is the best way we went about it. And I I I have tremendous amount of respect for those guys.
1: Oh, for sure, I a hundred percent agree. And they're still honoring the legacy of the band. Um, I don't know if it's out yet, but they have like kind of a, a history book about the band, either coming out or it's out. So. I think that's really cool too.
0: Yes. Yes. Very cool. Okay. So moving on with the the next album, the one I want to talk about. And, and, you know, so, you know, everyone knows out there that Chris and I come from almost two different extremes <laughs> when it comes to the metal that we like, but at the same time, we still both enjoy everything. Um, I'm going to talk about Kiss and their album Carnival of Souls. Uh, which was released in October of 1997 um, and produced by Toby Wright, Gene Simmons, and Paul Stanley. And the the reason why I bring that up and and think it's really important is because at this time, Kiss, uh, you know, everyone knows who Kiss is, you know, four guys in makeup, but they weren't in makeup at this time. In fact, actually, at the release of this album, they had actually put the makeup back on. And this was, uh, basically a way to satisfy the fans that were looking for the last album that was being made before the reunion, uh, with Peter and Ace took place. You know, Bruce Kulik was in the band, Eric Singer was in the band and they had relative success with the Revenge album in 1992. And, um, in 1995, late 95, they decided to start recording a new album. They went into the studio. But they realized that the music business changed. And they, and I don't know if it was Paul. It wasn't Paul so much. I think it was more Gene. Gene, you know, trying to always find the next big dollar that he can get really pushed Gene, uh, excuse me. Gene really pushed Paul to try and this grungy sound. And two things were accomplished out of that. One, Paul didn't like the direction that Kiss was going in. And two, it firmly established Kiss as followers rather than the leaders that they were in the 70s. And they, they basically kept trying to catch up and catch up and catch up throughout the 80s, even though for the most part, they were doing a good job of being a mainstay in the 80s they just kept trying they were a little bit behind everybody else and this album solidified the fact that they were followers because they were trying to become grungy you know and it did not work at all it's unfortunate
1: there's certain things about it that i can say like the guitar work i think obviously works uh the drumming sounds fine um, and I would even say it's like Jean's bass work is fine. Right. But the voices, the,
0: the vocals themselves just do not work.
1: Paul is not a grunge
0: singer. Well, he, he, he wasn't a grunge singer. He's not inspired by the music. And the other thing too, he's like, they were talking about because we wrote, they, they spent at that point, you're talking 1997, you know, they're, they're 23, 24 years into their career, and the entire time of their career, they were about, they literally sex, drugs, and rock and roll. and not, not so much the drugs, but it was sex, partying, and rock and roll. That was their thing, and all of a sudden, they're going to turn around and say, yeah, we're a little bit angsty. No, everyone knows they're not angsty. They're fucking millionaires beyond belief. And they're going to come back and say, "Oh, we're pissed off about something."
1: Right? Come, uh, you know. It just comes off as uh, disingenuous because it, I mean, uh, they're like fifty years old at that. Point, you know? Shit, yeah.
0: It, it was it, it Simmons, very just.
1: Gene Simmons was born in 1949. In 1997, yeah. he's not an angsty teenager. No. So it, it
0: was it was just it it was a terrible decision that Gene forced on Paul. Now Toby Wright. Who produced it great sound like like you you mentioned everything really sounded good the vocals sounded good it was just uninspired performances
1: yeah there's you know? there's a technical proficiency there but right that, that doesn't account for good music
0: I mean, there, there are some good riffs. I I, I listened to the album. They, there's a lot, a lot of good riffs on there, but the riffs went nowhere. They were kind of like lost in the ether. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, they didn't, they, if they would have had a bit more, and I don't want to use the term polishing because that wasn't even it either. They just needed more melodies. They needed better lyrics. Uh, you know, they could have taken those riffs and made them uh, a little poppier, And and, and they would have been, it would have been better, but they were literally trying to be, I mean, it sounds just like Alice in Chains and Toby produced Alice in Chains. I get that, but it sounds just like they're trying to come with that, that, uh, monotone, um, discordant sound that Alice in Chains is famous for, but that's not them. That's not kiss. Who gives a shit? Your kiss, put out a good album and people are going to like it, you know? That's, that's the big thing, but you know, this was something that they were working on that they put on the shelf because they got, they reunited with Peter and Ace. And I think ultimately it was probably a better move to do that because if that was the album that they were going to release in 1996, it was going to be a monumental failure and no one was going to show up for their, for their shows. So I think it worked out in their to their benefit that they reunited (laughs) as we can tell today.
1: It saved their career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: I, I I, I can't necessarily say that, that this was going to go somewhere like they were just going to disappear or they, you know, they just completely drop off the map. Right. But definitely them, reuniting and putting the mask the masks well the 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 um the the face paint back on made their career come back it 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 allowed for that resurgence um so a question for you and i i don't know if you know the answer to this but uh, i noticed on the, the the songwriting credits there is curtis cuomo on a lot of the songs now he was a, a sound engineer um I'm just, I'm just curious. Did he do anything else with the band that they, you know, or was he brought on to write because they were
0: trying to like kind of transition to this grungy sound? As far as I know, it was more about just getting the, uh, the grungy sound thing. Oh, okay. Because I I don't know of, of any other, um, Time in which he was associated with the band. Okay. I mean, I know he's a, he's a writer and a producer, and you know, he actually helped them also on Psycho Circus. So, I think it was more about the his songwriting abilities than anything else. You know, so, but he was part of the Kiss organization for a while, so that's a, that's part of it. If you want to look at it that way, I I just think
1: it's so funny that Kiss thinks like. Let's put out a grunge album in 1996, and I mean I'm I'm not talking about when it was actually released, but when they were planning to release it, right? And this is after really the grunge kind of movement was dying, you know, after Kurt Cobain, you know, after like when we talked about it on our grunge episode, we you there's really only that that like short span of time where grunge was like a big thing, and a lot of the bands were kind of like changing either, either dropping off the map or changing styles because even they were transitioning out of that. So you saying like you were dead on saying that it, it, it established them as followers because they were even jumping onto the trend after, after the trend was like over, over almost.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. I mean, Alice in Chains, that's, that's who they are that's their sound and that is who they are but even even they somewhat progressed in they, their they in their did. songwriting but they still made discordant you know monotone sounding albums or records or songs yeah but they had a unique sound too they it was liked. unique to them that no one else should be trying to copy <laughs> you know because not, not everybody in in grunge sounded like Alice in Chains you know no really they had a metal sound too Yeah. I mean, think about the, the, the whole, the whole monotone thing, like, you know, the way that Lane and Jerry sang together, uh, it was extremely unique. And there's only one other band or one other artist who can pull that off on a regular basis. And that's Aaron Lewis from stained. Okay. He's, he's pretty much dead on to be able to, to mimic that because he's, he's very similar in that style, but other than that, I don't know anybody else out there that's like that. So the fact that Kiss wanted wanted to come in there and, and really try to do this is like, Allison Chains kind of had moved on, mm-hmm. Grunge had already moved on at that point from, in, especially '97. In now, mind you, this album came out; it was supposed to come out in '96, you know, and they and they put it on the shelf. It it, it, it they should have just left it there, but they didn't. They did the, they did the right thing by releasing it for fans who wanted to hear it, and. It, you know, luckily they didn't bother to spend a tremendous amount of money on promotion or anything like that. It was, they just literally put it out and said, here you go for the fans. Cause I had a copy of it, um, that I got as a bootleg in 96 because I had, you know, it was starting to make the rounds and that's the, that was one of the big reasons why they released it because it got, it got out there. So <clears throat> yeah. Um, they were definitely followers. And for, so for anybody who's interested, uh, a couple of highlights on the album was the song hate. Uh, Gene Simmons had a nice touching song about, uh, friendship called childhood, childhood's end. I still didn't say that right. Childhood's end. <laughs> and then there was a nice song about, uh, the relationship between a father and child called I will be there by Paul Stanley. Other than that, I mean, jungle was an okay song killer bass riff, but the song doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. The whole album didn't go anywhere. And Bruce Kulick made an appearance on vocals on that album, too. All right, so what do you got? Uh, so
1: for my second album, I'm going to talk about Dark Tranquility, uh, their album The Mind's Eye. This was also, uh, well, sorry, this was their third album. Uh, Dark Tranquility is from Bildal, uh, Gothenburg, Sweden. So um, part of that Gothenburg scene. Um, so j- I'm going to go over, and I apologize for any for well for any mispronounce for probably all mispronounced names um but uh <laughs> um their their vocalist Mikhail stan uh lead guitarist nicholas sundin rhythm guitar frederick Johansson. um this was his final album and unfortunately last year he passed away um their their bassist martin henriksen so, interestingly enough, this was his last album on bass, and then he would move over to rhythm guitar on the next album. That's going to be a theme that I talk about uh, a little bit later as well. And uh, their drummer, uh, Anders Jivarp. Um, so, what's interesting about the Gothenburg scene is you see these names, and you see them on other albums from other bands. And they, they it's like these guys were all friends they all lived around each other together they were you know hanging out together and this guy from this band would switch over to this band and um specifically um in their first album uh mikhail uh the the singer um he became he was actually just a guitarist and then he became their singer uh in flames singer anders frieden move uh was on their their first album as their singer and then he moved to in flames now my or Mikael or michael he was the singer for in flames and he moved over to uh dark tranquility so it's it's really interesting to see how like all these guys worked together they were friends and you know um and then just some of them would drop off and go live their normal lives. And then all of a sudden show back up in the music scene again and stuff. And so just recently we talked about the halo effect and some of these guys are in the halo effect with in flames guys too. So it very, very interesting to see. Um, so for me, what I really liked about this album was like I said on their first album, they had different singer, um, kind of like feeling, you know, around and and not quite getting that like um, that sound that they would be identified with. This was the first album that I would say really started to take shape of what Dark Tranquillity was. Um, you have stuff like the the final track on the album, um, "Title Tantrum," that would really carry over into stuff they were doing on the next few albums, where the sound would kind of evolve. Um, introduction of keyboards, uh, just really, uh, an advancement for the band. However, it wasn't, it was like this lineup would change into what would be kind of considered their classic lineup. So it was the end of an era. So, um, what we said at the top of the show where there was, it was a transition year, that's exactly what this was. So for me, it's not one of their best albums, but. I still really like it because there's a lot of 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 you know developmental uh stages here like where they're they are transitioning to probably my favorite era of the band. Um I would say the highlights for me are and I've always called this Zodiacal but it's it's written as Zodiacal light so I'm never sure what his intention was when he was trying to to write it out because you know there's that like two aspects of the song like the zodiac and you know betrayal and all this stuff like it's it so it probably is a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing um Hedon insanity's crescendo that's a really cool song where they have a female vocalist kind of do an intro like a soft intro that that pun intended crescendos into a metal song um and then t- a title tantrum i really like because that kind of showed signs of what would be on projector, which I think is a lot of people's favorite album. Um, and then, you know, stuff that would even carry over into, uh, the, you know, as far as Haven, et cetera. So, um, I, I really like, you know, the direction they were going, but not quite, you know, not quite there for me, but I always do like this album. If I'm going to start like a, a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a marathon of their stuff um usually maybe the first two albums i don't listen to everything i kind of listen to my favorite tracks off of those albums but this one is kind of where i start and i go i'm gonna listen to the whole album all the way through um one other note i mentioned anders frieden he actually does appear on this album as a guest vocalist on heaton so there is still that connection with the band
0: that's it's crazy how they just all you know go back and forth like that yeah um, so one thing I noticed and I'm just looking at this I I I can be honest and say I've never heard this album, right? okay I, I may have heard something and and I just don't know it but um what I noticed because you were saying something that that kind of struck me you said that this album wasn't quite there yet, but the next album is probably their best, right? or considered their best. And what I've, what I noticed is that this was the last album on Osmos records. And then the uh, projector jumped on to century media. And what I find funny about that is that a lot of bands, it's like when they switch labels, especially back in the day, or especially when they're younger bands, right. Um, they either do one of two things and it's never in the middle. It's either they go out with a bang on their last album because they say, you know what, screw it. You know, we're, we're in that, we're on that uh, way up. So why are we going to slow down the momentum? Or they do that not necessarily on purpose, but you'll get a band that just sits there and kind of goes through the motions because they want to get out of their contract. Right. And to me, that's like the worst thing you could possibly do. But, I can understand it because some people are just not inspired when they're living, uh, dealing with a bad financial and, uh, business decision that they have to deal with. So you, you said something that projector being, you know, something that may have been considered their, the, the, some of their best work, they jumped on century media. And so of course, you know, century media, bigger label, probably more money, saw something in them and they, they giving them a push. They, was, they were probably inspired by that, you know? So that's that's an interesting aspect when you think of these things, especially you know seeing a band on the third the third album. You don't want to see them kind of wallow in the mire, but you also want to you know you don't want to. You would like to see them progress, but you don't want to see them regress. Oh, for sure. And when you're on
1: a major label, like there's there's more support. You have some you know possibly better producers better engineers that are working for them so i think there's that aspect too where uh, you know if you're with the right producer right uh engineer even like they will push you forward go like you know we're hearing what you what you're doing why don't you push this even further you know there's that support there that really makes a difference a lot of times so it's it's possible i i i don't know enough about that aspect of it i i I. You know me'll I'll definitely do research on it but
0: well I, but um, I can see you know like mind's eye was produced and recorded in the same place it was produced by Frederick Norson which is fine mm-hmm. um and he seems like a very good producer from what I've what I've been able to tell um the studio is fine but it's, it's a matter of cash it's a matter of taking time and I think that's what Century media brought to the table and and helped the band get that much better when you're given a certain amount of time you say okay listen we're gonna give you $500,000 to make an album, whatever it may be, right? It's better than saying, hey, you got 5000 bucks, that so you need to be out of here by next week. It could be the same exact studio. You could go to electric. You could go to Abbey Road. You can go to Electric Lady. If you only got $5,000 to spend and you got to be out of there in a few days compared to being able to spend two, three months in a place, it, it makes a huge difference. You know, especially with your attitude and, and and the way you put things together, because all of a sudden you're just starting to put microphones together, and you almost don't care how good or bad it sounds. You're just like getting something done, you know. When you, when you take the time to sit there and say, "Okay, I want this to sound like this," and and you have that ability, that's why things get to be so much better. So it's it's uh it's definitely along those lines, in my opinion. Well, mm-hmm. how many
1: how many times have we talked about bands where we've heard stories like they recorded something was it was it Grim Reaper that recorded an album where they were with one label and then they left the label to record it
0: again somewhere else or am I thinking of a different band? I th- um I know I think I know what you're talking about. I don't know if it was Grim Reaper or not, but I I definitely remember we were talking about that probably within the last 6 months
1: yeah so we've heard these stories where you know the, the, the labels not providing what a band needs and it sometimes ended bands especially not ones that didn't get any kind of major financial support it bankrupted a lot of the guys in the uh, new album era like we, we talked about that where um, you know they they were put on a label that gave them absolutely no support and they were throwing in their own money just to to make something happen. And
0: then they, it, they weren't able to survive all that, you know? So, and you, it, funny, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but you know, what's funny about that is that that's exactly what today's model is, except the difference is with today's model. They have to tour to make money. The album is just the excuse to go out and tour mm-hmm. where back then you wanted to go out. Uh, you wanted to put out an album so people could hear you because it was a lot harder to be heard back then than it is now, and yeah. touring was a byproduct that a lot of record companies would would put you on a tour. They would pay for most of it, but now it's it's completely opposite. You you they're touring. It's in, completely independent. Record labels not doing anything with tours. Um, so that's why the announcement that came out today about um, Live Nation not charging. Uh, bands for merchandise cuts uh, at clubs is is huge, uh, but that's a that's a story for another time. For anybody who's read it out there, that's a really big thing that Live Nation's doing. Um, but we'll we'll touch upon that in a second. And you know, so the the new Album era people they wanted to put records out because they wanted to be heard, they wanted to be seen, and if there was no money behind it, they've they just drifted away into nothingness. Today, it's a completely different story. So I'm sorry I, I cut you off to explain that.
1: No, no, no. You're fine. It's it, it a good transition. Just so that.
0: As, as I was saying before, um, just to touch back on it real quickly, Live Nation announced today that they would be suspending. And, and I, I find good. some people called it completely canceling it. I, the way I read the article was that it was doing it for this year, and next year, they were canceling all merchandise cuts, so they were not taking any any of the cut of the merchandise from the bands that went on tour at clubs. So this does not include, you know, large venue areas like you know stadiums and, and arenas and sheds. But you're talking about the ones that promote, you know, the smaller bands that you know that work in clubs. What they're also okay. doing, what they're also doing, and this is pretty interesting in and of itself, they're providing these opening acts, they're providing the the headliners as well as the opening acts fifteen hundred dollars In food and gas, uh, food, yeah, food and gas money, mostly gas and food, put it back that way, gas and food money to be able to go from show to show to show, which I've uh, to me, Sounds like they're pr- trying to raise interest in the the, the scene again. They try are to, try to fuel it again. I, I sniff I sniff a rat in there. When they're, they're paying fifteen hundred dollars on top of the the money that they get for the show, they're not taking a cut of the merchandise. But Live Nation ain't doing shit for free. So somewhere in there, there's a fine print in there and i i want to believe that they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart but live nation doesn't do shit out of the kindness of their heart that's just my opinion
1: (laughs) so if you i don't know if you remember this um at at the uh minute made park for for the astros years ago um when attendance was dwindling they decided to uh allow people to bring in their own snacks and they had lowered the price of beer. they had lowered the price of water. I think you could even bring in the bottle of water at that time. And that like people started going to the games again, they were excited about it. It was like, it was just enough to ignite that interest again. And then in the next year, there was like seven bucks at 13 bucks, you know, like it was, it was enough to get people back in the seats and I wonder if there's some thought of the same kind of thing where, like, let's do this for a year or two, get people excited about touring again, and then we'll we'll rake them across the coals after that, you know? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how it all works, but I get the feeling, like, you're, you're right. There, nobody does anything for free. Um, there's, like,
0: there's almost no chance. But there's something to it. You know, where I mean, there is, I don't, I don't think, um, I, I see your point about it. I don't think, cause quite honestly, I mean, you and I, we like to go to shows, right? So I don't, I don't think it's a matter of getting the bands there or, or, or I don't think it's a matter of not of a non-interest put it that way. I really don't think it's well, a matter we've heard of a lot of bands talk about. It's not worth. Well, that's the difference. There's, you see, that, that's, that's where it's different. It's not it's not the fact that the fans are not interested. It's no, it that, has nothing to do with the fans. It has specifically to do with the band. Right, but we, we, you when you said that they, they're, they're trying to, I guess, lower prices or do whatever to get the fans to go out to the show. No, 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 no. That was for the Astros. Okay. What I was saying was to get the bands interested oh, to the bands in tour. touring. Yeah. Ah, ah, yeah. Yeah. No, then, yeah, I agree with that. Um, And that's that's just... I mean I, I get it it's, it's it's tough for these bands that don't make much money I mean you're you're not making a huge amount of money per night you think about opening acts that don't you know like when you go to we go to see Queensrÿche right we're paying 35 bucks for a ticket okay they they sell out let's just put 2000 seats okay it, it's not a lot I mean, that's what seventy thousand dollars. Okay, this yeah. sounds it sounds like a lot of money for one night, but when you start thinking about out of that seventy thousand dollars, that's you're pulling in that much cash. That's your gross cash. Okay, so a little bit a real quick tidbit on the the side of the, the music business: seventy thousand dollars gross cash for one night. That sounds like a lot, but then you got to pay the opening act. You got to pay your managers. You got to pay the, the, the road manager, the, the, the business manager, the, the tour manager. All that stuff comes out of the gross profit. And not even the gross profit. Me, all that comes out of the, the gross revenue, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, when everybody's paid your crew and everything like that, there's not a lot of money left for the band. So let's say there's $20,000 left. Let's just—that's a—it sounds like a low number, but let's just say you play one night, you got twenty thousand dollars. Okay, be split between five guys. All right, you got four thousand bucks each for a one-night show. You're not doing this seven nights a week. You're not doing it five nights a week. Not anymore. Not at this age. And then then I say age, talking about Queensrÿch. Some of the younger bands maybe, but if the younger bands that are doing it, they're not paying. Then that can't pay that much. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like a lot of money, you know, and as up if you're, if you're making 10 grand a week, it sounds like a shit ton of money, you know, but in reality, I believe there's more to that expense than even that, you know, when you, when you come down to it, the gas, the rentals, I mean, the, 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 the equipment you got to rent, I mean, some of these things that they own it. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that let's say, you know, Casey, Casey Grillo doesn't necessarily own the drums right there. And then if they, if he does own it, it's because he's, 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 uh, what do they call that? Um, sponsored, right? Some of the guys own their own equipment, but like all the amps, the PA and all that stuff is rented everywhere they go. They don't bring that with them. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's. It's, you know they don't rent. They don't own. I mean, some might, but they don't necessarily own the soundboard. They don't, they don't necessarily own the lighting rig that is going to work that particular show. Because every place is different. But when, when you're dealing with clubs, I'm ta- I'm specifically with clubs here. You know what is it? That Dave Mustaine said recently. It's like forty thousand dollars a night just to put on, just to travel from one one city to the next, or something like that, or maybe yeah. even more. I mean, it's it's a lot of money. You know. Anyhow sidetracked um so you just talked about dark tranquility uh, any any known reason why they put two L's in tranquility
1: uh it was a typo <laughs> and they left it that way it was not a typo per se they they just misspelled it and it
0: was yeah that was it they just that's left pre- it <laughs> that's pretty cool and no one can't it- find them half the time i'm trying to spell it correctly <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's that's pretty funny. All right. Um so that brings me to we were just talking about them Queensryche. Um they released their sixth studio album in 1997 named Here in the Now Frontier. Um All right. I'm going to say it. By this time Queensryche was starting to become irrelevant. And it's unfortunate. Um Promised Land it had a lot of promise in promotion it did not deliver promise land came out a couple years earlier this album had a lot of promise and it 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 started out okay cuz the singles that they put out sign of the times was very classic queensreich wasn't very upbeat wasn't down or or uh, you know somber or anything like that it was mid-paced steady um nice melody to it. And then the second single you came out, that was pretty good. That's a pretty cool song. Um, however, the rest of the album didn't really bring it, um, like Wreck is known for. So it was, it was a tough one. This album, as much as I wanted to Wreck to bring it back, bring it back. They just didn't get there. Um, and, Oddly enough, the song "A Sign of the Times" had it was very pr- prophetic, poetic, all that stuff. Um, Chris DeGarma would leave at the end of the tour, and uh, he he left Queensryche basically permanently. He he came back on uh, a couple albums later on the Tribe album to record uh, some songs with them, write some songs, but he did not remain a member. Um, you know, it's it's. It's disappointing because you know, I'm a huge Queensryche fan. And at this time, I'm like, yes, you know they got a new album out, and it, it sounds great and all this, but it just didn't go anywhere. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, one of the things I do like about this album, though, is that it's B-side to one of the singles. I can't remember if it was Sign of the Times or You. Uh, the B-side had a song called Chasing Blue Sky that was finally included on the album in 2003 remasters. Uh, Chasing Blue Sky is an absolutely beautiful song. I love that song. I, I believe it was included on their greatest hits. That's how good of a freaking song it was. Let me clarify that. But uh, in the meantime, what did you think of it?
1: So, I was not a big fan of Queensrÿch, as you know, for the longest time, and I think mostly it was because of this kind of era of the band. The stuff that I was hearing was was from. You know, this album, you know, everything that came after it, Q2K, Tribe. Um, it just, I just was wasn't into it. I remember around the time that American Soldier came out, um, or maybe it was even dedicated to chaos, um, around that time Jeff Tate had appeared on uh that metal show, and I was just like, This guy, he really Likes the smell of his own farts. um he was he's talking, a little douchey isn't he? yeah, he's he was talking about, you know, his his uh I guess it was a wine that he had. and just the the way he talked about the band and everything it just wasn't I wasn't feeling it, you know. and then it, it was it wasn't long after that that they broke up with with Jeff Tate. so uh it was it wasn't surprising to me. um that that being said, as we've done this show, uh, I really have come to enjoy those early albums. The Warning, uh, Rage for Order, probably my favorite. Uh, Operation Mindcrime, Empire. Those first four albums I think are absolutely great. Uh, but around this time, ninety four, ninety seven, you know, they they were taking longer and longer to put out albums. They were getting more um, what's the word like uh, experimental kind of progressive. And I just I wasn't enjoying the stuff that they were doing. So um, I don't I don't I mean I'd have to give this more of a listen. Uh, I think you you mentioned you uh, it's it's a decent song, uh, but it just you could tell Chris Degarmo's heart wasn't really in it anymore,
0: and there's a reason he left. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there was a lot of I mean, obviously, we don't know what kind of inner turmoil these bands have. But, you know, there's a reason why someone leaves. You know, it's not because, hey, I'd rather go out and fly planes. Mm, You know what? I'm sorry. I just don't believe that someone's going to leave just because I want to go fly planes. Just sort of like how KK Downing said, I'm going to retire and I'm going to go run a golf course. Yeah, right. (laughs) We all know there's more to it than that. And obviously there's more. It has come out since then. Yeah, and so, the passion's not there, or
1: the 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 relationships that that were once great are not there, you know. And sometimes just getting away from those those kind of relationships makes you change your mind and feel better about things. It's like getting a new job, even. It just feels that 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 way. So, um, you know, it's it's tough to tell because we're not on the inside. We're we're uh, you know. I was gonna say we flies on the wall, but we're not right. We're the we're the opposite. So, right. um, it, you know, it's it's tough to tell, but you can hear in music when you when you have a passion for music, you can hear when there the passion of the artist is not there. So, I and for me, that's kind of how it
0: was. It it doesn't have that same uh, power that the earlier albums had. Oh no! It was, they went in a completely different direction, and it was led by Jeff Tate. So sure. we'll leave it at that. Uh, what do you got next for your album choices?
1: So I'm going to continue uh, with the Scandinavian side of things. Um, so I'm going to talk about In Flames. Uh, I mentioned them earlier. Uh, they released Horacle in 1997. Uh, again, they're from Gothenburg, Sweden. This was also their third album and uh so this was this was a carryover of the same lineup from the previous album so uh if you're familiar with in flames uh, or if you're not inf- familiar with them uh their first band sorry their first album was more of a project than a band per se uh jesper stromblad wanted to record an album he played drums on that tr- on that album and um this was kind of his vehicle to get his ideas out and so he just hired different musicians or brought on uh friends of his uh to to play including michael stan from from uh dark tranquility who sang on that first album um by this time on their their second and then their third album it was more of a band than a project so again this was the same band that carried over uh anders freden on vocals glenn lungstrom on lead guitar jesper stromblad on rhythm guitar uh johan larsen on bass and bjorn galat on drums now what's interesting is that when johan and and glenn left the band uh bjorn moved over from drums to lead guitar so interestingly enough they had two drummers become guitarists by their their fourth album. <laughs> um, what
0: Are their names Except? <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So uh this to me is one of my favorite albums from the band. Um you know it's the start of to me like my favorite trilogy of albums from them, which was uh the Horacle, then Colony and Clayman. Uh this was the start of that kind of sound like they I not 100 percent the start but a lot of the concepts and the maturity would start here whereas on Jester a race they were still kind of raw which i i like it like i i think those those four albums are still my favorite from the band um uh, what's interesting too is the that because anders was still learning english at the time he he gave his ideas of what he wanted to get across in in uh you know his language and then he he talked to nicholas sundin who i just mentioned uh, with dark tranquility he's their lead guitarist and nicholas wrote the lyrics in english so interestingly enough he he was the 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 writer of the lyrics on this particular album um so you see again that connection back with dark tranquility and uh, so my, my highlights of this album are Jotun, um, Food for the Gods, dark, uh, Dialogue with the Stars, which is my favorite instrumental by the band. I think it's absolutely amazing. Uh, episode 666 and Everything Counts, which is a cover of Depeche Mode, but it's amazing and fits on the album perfectly. Um, so really cool stuff. Uh, if you haven't listened to this album, I highly recommend it. And uh what are your thoughts on the album?
0: You know, I like I like this album. Um, I've I've heard it a few times. Um, I I don't know enough about it to sit there and say, oh, you know, this one song is better than the other. I do like dialogue with the stars. We t- I think we talked about that one when we did our instrumental episode, Ooh, I believe so, yeah. two years ago, I think it was at this time. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that was a long time ago. Um, so uh it it, it what I heard of it, I remember when we did this comparison. um I liked it a lot. it was it was pretty cool. again, it was still something I was I was getting used to. I had just opened my mind to uh, melodic death metal, so there was a lot of getting used to certain things. um probably for me, you know when when you when we talk about that stuff, um, I think the jester um, the jester race was one that stood out for me as well. Colony stood out for me. Um, I think that one had a lot of, uh, uh, really, how how do I say it without sounding com- stupid? Uh, it was, a, it was, <laughs> it was a good album. Let me just leave it that way. Cause I'm going to sound dumb. Um, and then of course there was Clayman that came out, you know, three years later. Um, so they, they had a good string of albums, put it that way. and they established themselves as, you know, the leaders of this genre at the time. So, you know, hands down to them. And as you talked earlier, and we were talking about producers and stuff like that. So I started to think, I'm looking at Frederick Nordstrom's name and he reminds me of Randy Burns from Florida and Morris Sound Studios. Randy Burns was the one who did all the classic death metal albums from florida or the florida death metal albums he he did some stuff for for death cannibal corpse all those guys from florida and frederick normstrom did all these albums for all these bands that are closely associated with each other um and that's that's really cool i mean he did stuff for the haunted for opeth soil work uh in flames you know uh dark tranquility arch enemy you know this is all the work at the gates all this stuff the 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 Gothenburg sound he's he's a huge huge part of that and his studio was also i mean I, it, it the studio is called um Studio Fredman so that's his place so it's you know I, although i don't think mor sound was was randy Burns's place he just worked there but um studio Fredman is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Frederick Nordstrom's studio. So they all came to him. So he had a huge hand in that. And, um, that was, that's just a special period of time. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad when I think about it, that I wasn't involved in it or or into it at the time. Cause you know, it would have been cool sort of like how I was in, In on the new wave of British, well, I was late on the new wave of British heavy metal, but I was in on the thrash metal scene, (laughs) you know? No, I'm
1: so, that's one thing, like I was, I was in on that, that Gothenburg scene, like from, from at the gates all the way through, I would say Clayman, like that was, that was like a good 10 years of, of that Gothenburg sound developing and really reaching its pinnacle. You know, in flames is still around. They're still they're probably more popular today than they've ever been. Um, but they're like fifty percent American band and and Swedish band now. They have a completely different sound. Um, dark tranquility has changed a lot. they I think for the most part they've they've stayed similar, but they've really developed into something different, too. Obviously, children of bottom is not around anymore. Soil work has changed entirely. Um, and I remember that experiencing that, like where, all these bands like in the early 2000s started changing their sound and kind of adapting like i think it poetically in flames "Reroot to remain album was specifically that like them saying like we gotta change or we're not gonna persevere and that can go one of two ways like it, it can be it can really backfire on you uh, as we've talked about with other bands where they were like we you know we gotta change or but you know these bands were at the forefront of it too they weren't followers like you mentioned you know with kiss where they changed the guys that were starting the thing to just following musically they were still at the forefront of even the change of their style so um you know like it or lo- or, or hate it you know that they, they you know they were still pioneers at the time i would say so um You know that that whole Gothenburg scene is really interesting i think we should delve more into it at some point but uh yeah like i think this is a really solid album to me it's a front to back like i can listen to every song and i do like i don't i don't skip a track on this album
0: you know uh when you were talking about the scene and stuff like that i liken it to how the big four And it's almost like you could sit there and say "Dark Tranquillity in Flames." Uh, Who's the other one? Soil Work, and there's one more probably. in there, at the gates, I would say, maybe, maybe at the gates was honestly
1: they broke up before the Gothenburg sound like really took off. Right. So So, they they were more like the Black Sabbath of that that genre because "Flutter of the Soul" really led into the Gothenburg scene but they broke up that same year and everything that followed was more like even more developed in that genre. Like they, they had the the early makings of the sound, but they, they technically weren't like that Gothenburg sound. There was just like hints, like the bands that, that opt out of that scene were like, they were inspired by them, but not necessarily the same, you
0: know? Right. So, so what I was getting at sort of like in flames to me, if you want to make a comparison is like the Metallica of that scene where they, they, they were leaders of that scene. They were at the forefront and they decided to make their own path and go in a different direction. And still from time to time, you, you'll hear them throw in a riff that says, Oh yeah. Oh no. Okay. They're not completely back, (laughs) but so it's uh, it's one of those things. It's just like, Metallica, has, Metallica does their own, has done their own thing from the beginning, and uh, even though their thing was at the beginning, you know what thrash was, immediately in their second album, they, you can see them already veering off to one side, and it kept going. So, sure. um, and and in Flames is just like that. I mean, they they veered in in the in the two thousands away. From from what they were known for, but yet they've maintained and have been able to sustain a very long and lengthy career and relatively successful, you know, and still kind of at this their album incorporates everything that they've done, which I think is pretty cool for them, you, you know, even though it's not the you way they're new can, album. The new album. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it incorporates everything. Like it has the original, the older, you know, colony Horacle kind of sound to it in certain songs. And then it still incorporates some of the newer stuff that they've done over the years. In you know, so I I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Like that.
1: All right. So what you got next?
0: All right. So for my next album, um, I've got, uh, some, some dude who sings, uh, he's not a bad singer. Uh, his name is Bruce. Bruce Dickinson, (laughs) uh, you may have heard of him from this little band, you know, from, you know, East end of London called iron maiden, uh, in 1997, he released an album called accident of birth. And it's kind of weird that that's titled that way when you think about it, because realistically, this is almost like a rebirth for Bruce because he put behind their experimental skunk works. He put behind the um the the wanting to be, you know, um alternative. and he went back to being who he was, sort of like how, you know, Rob Halford rediscovered himself when he when he made the band Halford after his experiment in two. So he released the accident of birth Bruce released accident and Birth in nineteen ninety seven. Um, it was produced by Roy Z. Now this is the second collaboration with Roy Z, not as a producer, but as a musician. And then this was the first with Roy as a producer and it's the first of a long, lengthy relationship with Roy, because I believe he is producing, uh, and playing on his new album that will come out in 2024. So, yeah, they've been together for all that time. So that's pretty cool. Um like I said, the album is a stylistic return for Bruce back to his heavy metal roots. Um, and also coming along for the ride was a certain gentleman named Adrian Smith, who would, um, I know that guy. Yeah. He's a cool dude. Um, <laughs> he oozes cool. <laughs> um, and so Adrian, you know, I mean, God, you hear, you hear the al- the playing on this album, the performance, the lead solos. oof, golly. You can tell it's Adrian. Um, this is an incredible album. I mean, it, and when I put down what highlights were there, I couldn't stop listing all the songs. I mean, Freak, Star Children, Dark Side of Aquarius, Accident to Birth, Man of Sorrows, and Road to Hell. Road to Hell being an exceptionally big song for me. I love that song. So, yeah, we both love Road to Hell. So, I mean, that that's an incredible album. And it got better because the following year, he puts out uh, Chemical Wedding. It just, and he just kept along that same vein. It's just incredible. Um, you know, we all know we've talked about Bruce before, so everyone kind of knows, you know, who he is, what, what he's all about. This was definitely a return that was much welcome as far as the style that would slowly just two years later lead to his return to Iron Maiden.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I love this album it's it's my second favorite of his i mean i I like chemical wedding better um but of the two albums i mean i think they're they're amazing and it's the same lineup too which is really cool like you you get that that growth of of them you know carrying over through you know sometimes when you have a solo artist right you you have one album and then all of a sudden it's it's almost like a completely different lineup the next time like, they still were allowed to grow together. And obviously, Adrian and, and Bruce had, you know, years and years of history. So, I, I think, like, when I first heard this one, I was like, yes, yes, Bruce. Is, is Bruce, like, he's not, you know, Skunkworks or even Tattooed Millionaire. Like, he is, he is, like, Bruce
0: Bruce from Iron Maiden. So,
1: absolutely love this album.
0: The album's great. All right, so what do you have for your last and final album for tonight?
1: So, still in the realm of Europe, but uh, a little bit, uh, I I guess, over to the English speaking side of Europe. (laughs) Uh, We're going with Judas Priest with the Jugulator. Now, we've mentioned this album before, and it is very divisive among the Judas Priest fandom. um, but I would say, for me, it's it's one of my favorites from the band. Um, I really like this era, even though um, you know it's drastically different. You have Tim Ripper, Owens on vocals, however, you still have the remaining as uh, like p- portion of the band from from Painkiller, which Painkiller is my absolute favorite album from Judas Priest. Um, much darker in tone, you know. There's uh, Glenn Tipton has commented that. In between the writing process of this, you know, they're waiting for Rob to come back. He's, you know, left to do other projects. Rob claims, you know, he never left the band and then all of a sudden they fired him. And we've heard conflicting stories of that. Um, You know, it's, it's one of those things like you, if you never come back to work, um, what are we supposed to do with you? like you got to come back and record an album well, you like, if you they're not
0: joined the fantasy football league. <laughs> right.
1: That's an, that's an in joke for one of our coworkers. Um, but, uh, so
0: former coworker,
1: there you go. Former. Um, so it's, it's one of those things. Like it's a, he said, she said thing, but, um, basically the, the idea is that in the writing process of, of waiting for Rob to come back, um, They had written multiple different albums, you know, let's do this, let's do that and times were changing and they got heavier and they, they went darker with the lyrics, you know, without Rob there, uh, you know, kind of bringing that light and kind of tongue in cheek jokes sometimes into the music. They went real dark and, uh, I can understand why that puts off some fans, but for me, when I heard this, I was totally in. and I really like Ripper's vocals. Um, I don't think he's the best lyricist, uh, but obviously these weren't really his lyrics. He just came in and sang the songs and he did it with gusto and and uh you know, a lot of attitude. He has that range that, that he can sing, um, the, the same songs that that Rob can. Obviously he came from a uh, Judas Priest cover band. Um, uh, so I really like the live albums that are associated with this album. I think uh it was what uh ninety eight meltdown or something that came out after that. Yeah uh great album. Um but uh you know it's it's gonna be divisive for the classic Judas Priest fan that listens to stained class or you know something like that. Just where screaming for vengeance. I'm more into the really heavy part of Jesus Priest's career. Um so my my highlights are Jugulator Stained or sorry Jugulator, Bloodstained, Decapitate, Burn in Hell, Bullet Train, and Cathedral Spires. Cathedral Spires, even if you're not the biggest fan of this era of the band, I suggest giving it a listen just so you can hear how uh amazing that uh Tim Ripper Owens, like his range, his ability to sing, um multiple octaves, just really good song, really, really talented singer. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, let's, I guess, what are your thoughts on the album? I don't
0: like it. (laughs) (laughs) I I like, I like Demolition better. (laughs) I think Demolition for me was more melodic, but other than that, it's not a bad album. It's not Judas Priest to me. So, yeah, then
1: I get that you're in your classic Judas Priest fan, right? I'm a
0: so. I'm, well, I'm a classic Judas Priest fan, but you, you're like with all bands, okay? They all go through periods of time where they sound, you know, one album sounds similar to the next. Very few bands can you sit there and say, "Oh, this album sounds different from that album, sounds different from that album," and in reality, I don't particularly like that from an artist because the as much as they want to say oh we're more experimental or you know we don't want to ever repeat ourselves in the same album it, you're 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 not giving your fans anything consistent and yeah, and, no, I get and that. there's a level of consistency that most humans in general want they they want to be able to expect something now if you grow into that it's a different story if you go one album and you kind of experiment a little bit more and then you expand on it the next one, but you're still keeping to your roots. That's a different story. So as far as Judas Priest is concerned, they have have several evolutions over their their career, the first two albums. I mean, from the first album to the second album, it's a dramatic difference in, in songwriting and style. I mean, everyone can sit there and say, well, no, they sound very similar. No, if you listen to... Sad Wings of Destiny. It doesn't sound much like anything that's on on uh, rock and rolla. But yeah, imagine if you'd only ever heard rock and rolla, and then you jump into
1: jugulator. <laughs> <Like, laughs>
0: you know, and, and that's, you're like, "What is this?" Exactly. And that's the thing about Judas <laughs> Priest's career; it's progressed. But a lot of that too is also the sign of the times. They were in there from the middle early '70s, and it just things progressed differently. Production was changing. Um, the, just tones were changing metal was, was evolving itself from Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, you know, Judas Priest themselves were evolving. And so that middle eighties, middle seventies to early eighties period. And I would sit there and say 70, 76 to 1980 or 81, even with, with a point of entry, they they were relatively consistent. The production changed, but then they changed. Screaming for Vengeance comes out, and it's like, whoa, this is completely different, but still Priest, but still amazing, you know. And then they pretty much continued in that vein, and then hit Turbo, and it's like, whoa, all right, now we're doing it again here. Now what the hell is this? But that was more, almost a, a sort of like Kiss, kind of being followers where they had been leaders before you know so yep. then they kind of they rein it back and i think uh, i was reading just the other day kk downing was talking about uh, painkiller where they they got scott travis on drums and all of a sudden it was like we can do so much more with the songwriting and
1: it, yeah it was an awakening for yeah, them yeah and
0: like. so all of a sudden you can see i mean if you listen to painkiller the song right okay so you have screaming for vengeance which is this incredibly brutal song but if you think about the drumming in it it's it's uh, hard to say. I don't want to say it's basic but it's it's not extraordinary it, it's it, basic it, it does everything the song needs right imagine if Scott would have been there to write those parts at the time look at how Painkiller painkillers
1: watch it live you know see how he plays it
0: he doesn't do it exactly doesn't do it exactly how, the same but it, yeah. it he doesn't stray too far away but he does put his little influence in there but, but he puts enough that it gives it some
1: it's it's look the english are not known for uh, spices which is hilarious because that's <laughs> you know <laughs> let, let's talk about the spice trade um but <laughs> But what's interesting is when Scott Travis is on drums, he really gives everything. The older songs a little bit of spice that you go, man, this is even better.
0: And for those of you listening out there who don't realize, Scott Travis is American, (laughs) so (laughs) that's the reason why. No, and I, I, and that's my comparison. I was saying, man, Painkiller, you could just see the technical ability just skyrockets so that allowed kk and glenn to come up with some incredible music um so then you know of course the next album you know rob disappears so they they did it again they they went darker but that part of that you know part of the darkness is the fact that they're probably pissed off you know and so yeah i mean it's been seven years since
1: they put out an album as as glenn says you know they they wrote theoretically several albums in between you know so that evolution we missed so yeah I I get it but I still love the album and uh and I think people that really love heavy metal like not heavy metal like the concept but like heavy music will probably like it as well
0: it's hard to sit there and say should the band have changed their name you know in and. I don't think at ever at any point was there ever a consideration of changing the name Judas Priest but if you're going to make an album where you're you're starkly different than the previous one sometimes it's kind of like do we do this as Priest or do we do this as something else but yeah I guess you go along with the name that got you there that gives you the record the the recognition name recognition brand recognition and
1: sometimes the record companies they'll be like that, you have to that too yeah
0: so I get. All right. So, what's your last one? Well, speaking of people who change, <laughs> Metallica, nineteen ninety seven, uh, released Reload. So it's not they 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 loaded up in ninety six and reloaded in ninety seven, um, and you know, produced by the. We want to hate him, but we don't want to hate him, Rob, Bob Rock, because he gave the world and I put it that way because they went from being a very good growing popular metal act to the number one most popular and biggest selling metal band of all time with the black album, Bob, thank you, Bob rock. But then, you know, then load comes out and it's like, Oh, Bob, why'd you have to fuck it up? You know? And everyone blames Bob but guess what? Bob didn't write the songs. Bob didn't say you're going to come up with, uh, unforgiven 2. you know, Bob didn't come up with fuel. He didn't come up with low man's lyric or mama said, he's just the one who made it sound really damn good. So that being the case, reload is the sister album to load that was released 17 months earlier in 1996. It continued on the trend where Metallica, basically, they cut their hair, they were smoking cigars, drinking a lot of cognac, and wearing eye makeup. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was alternative Metallica, alternative metal, alternative rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was different, but damn it, it was still good. This album, to me, as a whole, um, as a whole, is probably. Not as good as the first one, as is as, as load, but it rocks a little harder in some cases. It's kind of odd, uh, you know. They, I, I would agree with that. I, I don't think it's as good of an album
1: as a whole, but I think it has some better songs than right. So unload. Yeah,
0: well. You think about this album has brought one of the biggest concert highlights with fuel. As their as a mainstay, I mean that you, you're not getting rid of that song, and it's it's the song that allows the the band to put up all the pyro as as much as they want. It's a cool pyro show that they do with with the song. So th- that song is a mainstay. The memory remains is one of their fucking heaviest songs, and you know you we could talk about and debate what heavy is, but when you listen to Memory Remains and you're just sludging your head that is one sludgy ass heavy song. Um, and you know, then it had devil's dance and unforgiven 2. And there was other songs, you know, attitude, low man's lyric fixer. There, there's some really interesting songs on here. Um, mm-hmm. and it's one of those where, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a love it or hate it kind of thing. And I'm I'm, I'm more on the love it side, although I'm not as, you know, like in love with it, you know, I'm madly in anger with it is what you want to put it that way.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I don't,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you know, it's, we've, we've rehashed it before we put the two albums against each other. We came up with a, a, a perfect low dish reload album, uh, on a previous episode. What's your thoughts on the album for, for tonight?
1: I mean, I, I always liked it. Um, you know it's such a difference from where metallica started but you know they stayed consistent with these two albums um by the time snm came out i think that ties into this this kind of era of the band where you know it started with the black album through through snm um you know i i i i don't love every song by any means. And I think this is definitely the weaker of the two. Um, but yeah, there's some absolute classics on here and even, even friends of mine that are into even much heavier music than, than sometimes I like, um, still respect Metallica, respect this era of the band. Um, so yeah, I'm I mean, I was a fan those th- around the time th- Uh, Let's say Reload, yeah, that would be the first time that I would have seen Metallica. So, um, yeah, still good stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's... What I I like, what you just said, is that you have friends of yours that like heavier stuff that still respect this album or respect the band. And the bottom line is that it's metal. It's not the heaviest of metal, but it's not... You know, it's not the.
1: Uh, it's country rock. Metal, you
0: know? <laughs> it is what it is, and it's it's uh, it is still here today. It still does does well. Does it still it still does well. Still does. Well. It's still doing the whale thing, you know. <laughs> so, anyhow, that brings a close to tonight's um, highlights of the of four albums of each of us had uh, picked to choose and Duh. spoke about or speak about the.
1: I wanted to do one thing first mm-hmm.
0: before we Well, move I wasn't going to so, go to Big Four yet, but go on. Okay.
1: So, I wanted to talk about um a few albums that were like kind of relevant to the scene that I was in around this time. You know, I was into In Flames Dark Tranquillity, Ch- Children of Bottom, obviously. But the the guys that I hung around with were kind of into these albums as well. Um so I'm just gonna go over a couple real quick. Um, and then I assume you're gonna do kind of the same thing, other bands that uh you know, around this time that had releases. Yep. Okay, so um Belphegor released uh Blut Sabbath. Uh they're an Austrian blackened death metal band. Um Dimu Borgir released Enthroned Darkness Triumphant. They're a Norwegian symphonic black metal band. Uh Camelot had Dominion they're a uh, power metal, American power metal band um, creator released outcast. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that album, but I've always been a big fan of creator uh, German thrash metal. Uh, but this album's more groove industrial uh, on the other side of things like Osman Cometh from Ozzy Osbourne was huge in my circle of friends. I don't know why it blew up probably because of the Osbourne's TV show. Uh, but that one, I remember everybody had that album. Uh, Rammstein had, uh, Saint Sucht, uh, which they are known as part of new German hardness, like dance metal. Uh, Septic Flesh had Ophidian Wheel, their Greek death metal band. Uh, Stradivarius had Visions, uh, Finnish Power Metal, uh, Strapping Young Lad, uh, that's Devin Townsend's band. They released City their Canadian extreme metal band and symphony X, uh, released the divine wings of tragedy and they're an American progressive metal band. So interestingly enough, you heard me talk about bands from all over the world, which is really cool that metal at this time in 1997 was just worldwide, you know, and, and it still is, but it was a different time in 1997, especially like me growing up as an American, we're hearing stuff from all over the world, all these imports, you know, even like Japanese stuff I'm starting to like hear for my first time. And it was just so cool to see all these people from all over the world love the same kind of music We're putting out the same kind of music that I loved. And I just thought that was such a cool experience, you know, just for me being in like middle school, going into high school and feeling like, you know, there was... People all across the world that love the same thing I did.
0: It makes you feel like you belong.
1: Yeah, I would I would say so for sure.
0: Cool. So the albums that I was gonna talk about, and uh, real quickly too, is um before we again to the albums, a couple of bands that formed in nineteen ninety-seven. kind of gives you an idea of some of the things here. Um The Dillinger Escape Plan, Dope, Hailstorm, Norma Jean. Uh, Possessed, Soil, Soulfly, Taproot, Three Days Grace, and Under Oath were all bands that started in 1997. A lot of those bands are still around today. And so that's a pretty cool thing. Um, Especially Soulfly is basically leading that pack in terms of still being around. Um, So to to that end, um, albums that came out uh, that of some relative importance in 1997, <clears throat> from some classic and newer bands. Uh, Aerosmith came out with Nine Lives. Um, Cold Chamber came out with their debut album. Cold Chamber Creed debut album, uh, My Own Prison. Um, Deftones Around the Fur. The Dills, the, bleh, the Dillinger Escape Plan came out with their uh, self-titled EP. Uh, Dawkin put out Shadow Life. I don't know why. <laughs> 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 God, God Smack came out with their independently released debut all wound up, which would turn into uh God Smack a year later. Um Hammerfall, Glory to the Brave, Hate Breed, Satisfaction is the death of desire. Um uh we talked about uh you talked about well, we talked about Kiss Creator, uh Limp Biscuit, their debut album, three dollar Bill Y'all came out that year. And you know what? For whatever it's worth, yes, they were the they were the, uh, I don't want to use the word darlings of new metal because they weren't really darlings, but they were someone that had a lot of influence on that scene. And this album, you know, while it was their debut album, they would obviously go on to have greater success with a couple albums after this. But this was the one that had Faith, their cover of George Michael's Faith. And it's a brand, it's a It's a fucking badass curver for anyone who has heard it you know what i'm talking about uh i just remember the
1: the the, the what was the album called the hot dog flavored water yeah Ch- that one.
0: the chocolate starfish and a hot dog flavored it, water.
1: that there you go that, that was the one that everyone
0: in my school had oh it was huge uh, it was huge
1: i didn't own it my sister did so I, it was I,
0: still in the house i own it myself it was a fucking huge album it's great i like it there's certain things about it I don't like, like the constant fuck, 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 fuck. It gets tiring after a while. Um, But other than that. Well, when you're a high schooler. It's kind of yeah, cool. It was, it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but anyway, uh, Machine Head with their second album, The More Things Change." Megadeth came out with Cryptic Writings that year. Molly Crew, Generation Swine. We kind of touched upon that earlier. Uh, Obituary, Back from the Dead, Overkill, From the Underground and Below. Uh, Primus, Brown album. Uh, Zaxxon Unleashed a Beast, Shadows Fall, their debut album, Somber Eyes to the Sky. Um, White Snake, Restless Heart. White Snake had basically been defunct at this point, and I believe that this was their first album back or second album back. I can't remember. Wasps came out with their industrial album, Kill, Fuck, Die, and there were some several greatest hits albums from Cinderella, Jane's Addiction. Scorpions, Soundgarden and uh, Pantera released 101 proof official live that came out this year as well in 1997. So that's pretty much the big highlight of all the albums that came out. That brings us to our big four for tonight. Chris, since it's your return, you get to go first.
1: Okay. Um, so, um, I'm going to start off with one that might surprise you. Uh, my number four is Fuel from Metallica. Um, that's just a really cool intro song. Uh, like you said, it's a concert staple, and um, it's just so high energy. It's hard not to like. Um, I'm a big mark for uh, uh, opening songs on albums. I just love the energy that comes with it most of the time. So, um, My number three is Burn in Hell from Judas Priest. I just love that song. Um, to me it's the best song on the album. I love the 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 riff and it just it's one of those that just sticks in my head and when I get pissed off, I just like in my head. I'm just like burning hell. <laughs> you know like just a uh, great song. Um my number 2 is Jotun from uh In Flames. Um again, it's a opening track off of an album. Um and I I just love the energy. It was one that really like when i first heard that and you know uh, I've, this was the first in flames album that i really remember um it might have been the first one that i owned it's it's hard for me to re- to remember 100% but this was the song that like when i heard it it was it was kind of like the first time i heard um injustice for all black and you know where i just like replayed the opening track over and over like it just it just hit me and i loved it um and then dead night warriors my number one from children of bottom um i was i'm so glad that i was there for like the full career of children of bottom and you know this was the first track i ever heard it was the first music video i saw from them and um i was hooked from the beginning and it's hard like I don't know if it's technically my favorite song from the the era, but it's the one that had the most impact on me. And it like just that aspect of it alone, just it's hard for me to not pick it as number one. I really love the song. I
0: love the band, and this was the start of it all for me. Cool, cool. I like the list, and you're going to be surprised by my list too. Uh, not necessarily by who is in it, but the songs. Okay. So, anyway, my number 4 song. So, so this was difficult for me the the overall the picking the four songs was kind of difficult for me only because I'm like I'm thinking songs, songs from 1997. What songs stand out, right? So I'm kind of going through everything in my head and I said, like, "You know what? This is a song that when I listen to it, I think it's really cool." And so number 4 for me is from Cole Chamber from their debut album, Loco. I think that song is cool as shit. <laughs> it's just okay. so, so fucking cool. Uh, me Loco. You know, I just, I mean, I remember listening to it when I was working for an IT company and I had, to, I worked inside the IT, uh, the server room. So it was very loud. And I, had, I had Winamp playing uh, KNAC from Los Angeles. And they played the shit out of a bunch of new metal songs, a bunch of industrial songs, and this is one that really came up on my on the playlist a lot, which is Loco. Number three. This is going to be a big surprise. Du, Duhost, hast, du nich. <laughs> Ramstein with du hast. The fucking song is so cool. I mean, <laughs> they it was. This is their debut album, isn't it? Right uh yeah so i, I mean so. this song still still to this day i mean just fucking kicks ass so that's a pretty cool song and i just did the whole fact that it's in german you know i, I think it's there's an,
1: not their second album
0: oh, it's their second but album. it's
1: the first it's the first one i believe that came out in the u.s and i could be wrong on that but I, it was the only one that i remember
0: but yeah i mean so it's one of those that uh Yes, it was their second album, but it was, yeah, it was the first one released internationally, I think um and it it went platinum in the u s. So go figure. Um, it was just a huge song and in the fact that it's German, you know, and I think they did an English version of it that just went nowhere. but um the first, the
1: i there was an English version, but it ha- it's weird because. It had
0: like different lyrics. Yeah. The song is called desire. I mean, it doesn't come across the same.
1: Well, well it was it, the lyrics were you hate, but the song is you have. So I, I, I always remember that I was taking German at the time. My family's German. My mom's from German. Um, and when, so I knew some of the lyrics of the song and I, I, you know, I could sing along to it. and, then there was the English version, and it was You Hate, You Hate Me. And I was like, why did they change the lyrics instead of just translating it? Anyway, I just thought it was weird. Because
0: it works better when you think about it. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, that's that was my number three song. I think that song is cool shit. Um, number two, we started getting some more popular names that I uh, am associated with. Bruce Dickinson, Road to Hell. It's... Probably my favorite Bruce Dickinson song. Although, uh, I believe it's silver wings. Is it silver wings? I think silver wings off his greatest hits album. That's a really killer riff. I love that album and I love that song, but anyway, that didn't come out in 97. So number one for me is very similar to your number four, same band Metallica, but it's the memory remains that song just fucking is mind numbingly heavy. And people can sit there and say, What are you talking about? Dude, the same the same complaint that people said true is not heavy. Oh, yes, it is. You know, and they continue to say every time they play, you want heavy, sad but true. You know, it's just as heavy as the thing that should not be. It's heavy as shit. Memory remains is super fucking cool. And then they added. Marianne Faithful on vocals, which is super cool because that's the only person who's ever appeared on a Metallica record that is not James, Lars, Kirk, Jason, Cliff, or Rob, and or, or Bob Rock. or Bob Rock. Yes, I was going to say that. <laughs> I forgot Bob Rock played on Saint Anger. He did. So yeah, you know, um, Marianne Faithful guest vocals on that, but it's, and she's so haunting. It's so cool. I love that song. And then it's just, again, a fan favorite. They played it when we did not see the Sunday show (laughs) in Arlington, but I have the video. Um, They played it there, so that's pretty cool. Anyhow, that is my number one big metal song, big four metal song of 1997. And that brings an end to this episode of Debating Metal. Remember, you can listen to us every week on your favorite podcast platform. Maybe not so much every week. We've been d- doing this on and off thing for a while now, but hey, we're still here. Keep listening. We're we're still bringing you shows. Uh you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, all the others. They're all out there. Pick one click on us, click like, subscribe, you're not going to be disappointed. And don't forget to interact
1: with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment and ring that bell to be notified when we post a new episode. And remember to tune in next time as we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya.